This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property, gee, plenty going on lately, lots in the media, things to talk about and discuss and I bring it to you here on NPR.nz. So lovely to have your company. We're just going to get into a little bit of the market first of all and then we'll go to a little bit around what's happening around the country to a certain extent in housing and then move on to what's happening in rental circles in today's show. So first up, let's have a look at the market. And this article from stuff.co.nz was based around the forum, the housing forum that was had in Palmerston North. And the latest housing figures show the magnitude of what they call a wicked crisis deepening, even as politicians, providers and developers grapple with the logistics of building more homes. The Palmerston North has topped the country for runaway annual house price increases with reports of buyer panic in light of lack of supply and certainly that's what I'm seeing in my real estate circles. There is just simply not many properties at all available. So when there isn't many available, the prices go up. So QV's March figures put the city's annual price increase at 26.8%. Now just let's just take a moment to have a think about that. That's like putting money aside in a bank and earning 26.8% over a year. That's a massive increase. For every $100,000 in a property, one year later you'd have almost $27,000. So that's quite incredible. And in fact, even in the last quarter in Palmerston North, prices have gone up 10.3%. The median price in Palmerston North now at $661,606. So really pretty incredible. And even the previous month's figures were house prices were at 638 So really... Big movement, and that makes it hard. And this is something that's been talked about at the Palmerston North Housing Summit. The coordinator, Chris Gullivan, described it as a wicked problem and went on to say, I'm afraid we've been caught napping. Now, that's uh, an opinion, of course. Uh, We did have a little bit of lead in time seeing what happened to the Auckland market. But in this article, Housing Minister Megan Woods, days after announcing the government's housing package, said the challenge of building enough affordable homes was like turning the tanker around after a decade of underinvestment, which I actually thought was quite a good analogy in terms of how long it takes to turn an oil tanker. The government had identified Palms North as one of nine priority areas for its public housing plan and promised 210 to 320 additional homes by 2024 and 20 to 80 emergency and transitional places. That's good. My understanding is there's around about 600 places needed, but that's still at least they're putting some effort in there. Wood said that everything in the package was designed to encourage new builds, discouraging mum and dad investors from competing with first home buyers for existing homes. You see, owners of new built homes were exempt 
from the 10-year Brightline test to discourage speculators and cuts to tax deductions for landlords. So they actually want investors to help add to supply. So I've been doing a lot of valuations recently for people who are looking, uh, that is investors, who are looking to buy new properties. Part of their lending for finance means that they require uh, rental valuations. But there was no more detail that Megan Woods could provide on how the government's $3.8 billion contestable fund to build infrastructure to open up more land for building would be shared out. Palmerston North Mayor Grant Smith said the council would be wanting a slice of that fund to help pay the millions of dollars it cost to ensure roads and services were in place before houses could be built. The Westpac Head of Institutional Relationships, Andrew Bashford, said even if house prices eased by 10%, They would simply take prices back to where they were four months ago, merely denting the forecasted 17% increase for the year ahead. The City Council expected to do a lot of the heavy lifting and freeing up land for development and showcasing how more intensive housing, including smaller one- and two-bedroom apartments, could be built. The Council was about to start selling sections at Tamakuku Terrace, which is its first venture into creating a new housing subdivision in decades. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. It's also working on the proposal to rezone 700 hectares to the west of the city at Kakatangiata to create more than 5,000 homes. So it's good, and there's a few other options on, on the cards as well. So the Council, um, I guess, trying to do what they can to free up land. Uh, Once the land is freed up, the housing will follow and then uh, things might start to become a little bit more affordable, one would hope, but we'll just watch that space. So what's happening nationally? The national housing price is up by more than $100,000 since early 2020. So the property, uh, Trade Me Properties website price index put the national average asking price at an all-time high of just under 785000 in February, and that's an increase of almost 107000 or 15.7% on February of last year. Gavin Lloyd, who's the Trade Me Property Sales Director, said that while homeowners will be pleased to hear property prices have climbed more than $100,000 in just one year, that house is now even further out of reach for first-home buyers. Nationally, demand is down by 2% year-on-year in February, while supply was down by 15%. So still, uh, the fact that they are both dropping is interesting, yet it's still likely to see prices go up significantly. So in terms of regions, I talked about Palmas North, but in terms of regions, Gisborne, prices went up 31% um, in the last 12 months. Manutu, Wanganui, 22%. Uh, that's, of course, quite a lot larger geographic area. So other things that are happening in, in the wider regions that are, have an effect on, on house prices, of course, is the Otaki to north of Levin Highway, which is being done. I went for a drive to Wellington recently, actually, tell a lie, it was to Raumati. However, um, it's interesting to see what effects. I was thinking while I was driving through uh, the likes of Otaki, Levin, Ohau, and so forth, that what a difference it will make to the trip to have a four-lane highway that bypasses those. So how do people think feel about it uh, in Levin? There was an article in stuff.co.nz uh, that says there's confidence among Levin businesses that any trade lost from passers-by will be more than counted by the reclamation of a main street that is safer and a town identity that is more assured. You see, a spin-off effect... Uh, 
around this 20-kilometre stretch of four-lane highway that's going to bypass Levin is also the same highway that will get people south to their workplaces much faster. So there is a creep north of population as the roading and uh, infrastructure creates a faster or more pleasant uh, journey south. So the businesses on Oxford Street that were approached by staff are bracing for pain in 2029 once that's finished, but they believe it's a short-term necessity and that the town will thrive. The construction starts 2025 and is slightly east of the current State Highway 1, avoiding also Manukau and Ohau before connecting north of Levin. So that's a bit of an update on that one there. I believe that it will just mean the population of Levin will uh, will grow and as a result um, lost trade, which isn't actually substantial. I won't go back to the article, but uh, the actual trade from passers-by is not large in Levin and I think it would be easily... Uh, made up for by people moving to the area. Here's an interesting article about the situation that some people find themselves in when property values are jumping massively during a separation, when you're trying to work out uh, splitting things. So this article says, Wellington House jumps $415,000 in value during the couple's separation process. So Joel Pauling has been unable to finalise his separation for over a year because the home he has to split keeps rising in value. And this is um, a, a real problem for, for many people at the moment. So eight months after Joel Pauling and his partner agreed to separate, the valuation of the Wellington home jumped 415000 the first valuation was taken in July 2020. And that established that the NIO house would be worth 7.35. However, this February, uh, it's been increased to 1.15 million. So he's one of a growing number of Kiwis undergoing divorce or separation who may find the process increasingly complicated by a highly volatile volatile housing market. This is according to Lady Deborah Chambers, a Queen's Council specialising in relationship property law. Pauling said he and his partner would walk away with more cash if they sold up, but the overheated market had left neither to be able to remain in the house nor afford another property nearby without first home buyer advantages. So here lies the problem. So in a relationship or a divorce, the amount after the split means that uh, you can't afford to buy, yet you can't afford to buy the other partner's side of the existing property. So that's quite a quite an interesting um, issue that I hadn't really thought about due to this rising market, that it's very hard to then get back into the market. I know of a, a few people locally and uh, uh, anecdotally who, who can't get back into um, the real estate market after, after a split. Speaking of split, there's a pretty good piece of land that's going to be split up in future. The, this was land um, in Auckland, and the headline says that Cinema Chain reaps $77.1 million windfall after selling Auckland land to rich listers. So the cinema company Reading Inter- International has sold a huge parcel of light industrial land in South Auckland, making a bumper profit. This is on Prices Road and McLaughlin's Road. It's a 28.5 hectare parcel of industrial land near Auckland Airport and it just sold for $77.1 million to a, uh, a chain of, of companies, if you like, which is um, through the buyers Anne and David Norman. And they own the umbrella company that has retail brands like Farmers, Wickles, Pascoe's, um, the Australian jewellery company Prouds and um, a stake in the warehouse group. 
So that's so they've bought this for seventy-seven point one million, and uh, they're not entirely sure what they're going to use it for. But they're going to get a design and open up that land as soon as possible. Now, Reading has done well out of this. They bought the property in two thousand and six for eleven point eight nine million, and they've just sold it for seventy-seven. So that's quite an amazing uh, investment at the time uh, in terms of the the assets there. So. Uh, could be something to do with um, box office uh, results, I guess. So they're just monetizing some assets to make sure that uh, they can offset the current market conditions uh, given COVID, etc. Although one would have to think it's also an industry that's uh, having difficulties with regards to the ease of access of subscription services at home too. I must say I went to the movies, I think it was last week, went to Gorilla vs, what was it, Godzilla vs Kong, excuse me, Godzilla vs Kong, um, and boy, the sound and picture in the movies is really is something else. If you haven't been for a while and you've been at home watching Netflix or Neon or, or something similar or Amazon, um, it just really illustrated how awesome the experience of going to the movies is uh, with regards to the sound systems and so forth. I don't know if they're updated, but, man, it was it was really, really good. Speaking of good, I'm going to put a little bit of music on now, and uh, this is a classic from Crosby, Stills & Nash. Sticking with the theme, this is... Our house. I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to you play. to Property Matters on MPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo, Irirangi o Natangata, 
Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company today. We're just going to do a slight change of tack here. And this is something which might be one of these things that are good to look up on the internet uh, because I'm going to be talking about Grand Designs UK just for a moment. And I'll just indulge myself and then uh, see what your thoughts. And you might have want to have a curious look at some seriously spooky builds of Grand Designs in the UK. Grand Designs is a show where people have uh, great ideas for how they're going to renovate or update what are often historic buildings and, ter- and then turning those into eventually uh, the, the results that they would have liked. And the program follows the process of the struggles and the financial struggles and physical struggles of doing so. So the part of Grand Designs that I really like is when they show the model, the computerised modelling of what it's going to look like. Um, so this article here by Colleen Hawkes around Grand Designs UK talks about um, building in a very unusual place. It says, we know land is in short supply in the big cities, but to build in a graveyard. So this season of Grand Designs UK starts off superbly with one of the most bizarre stories we've seen. Presenter Kevin McLeod wanders among old tombstones, fallen angels and broken crosses on an old London cemetery. It's cold, dark and eerie. This is seriously spooky stuff, yet it is where Justin Maxwell Stewart wants to live, above the ground we hope. The former Scots guard who has seen action in Iraq and Northern Ireland now leads extreme fishing expeditions, clearly has nothing to fear. He's incredibly enthusiastic, which is just as well. So this article to look up, I beg your pardon, the video to look up, and it might be available on TVNZ on on demand as well. He wants to rebuild a derelict 19th century Gothic cemetery keeper's lodge. I'd always looked at it and thought, what a wonderful building, he says. You've got lots of neighbours, but they're all dead. McLeod points out the obvious, but it doesn't bother Maxwell Stewart, who can see himself as an honorary warden wandering around with a lantern. I don't think of them as my dead neighbours, I think of them as my neighbours. Fair enough, although we wonder what his son, five-year-old George, thinks about this. And apparently he learnt to read by reading the gravestones. So (laughs) pretty interesting. But here's the interesting thing, and this is why it's worth looking up. Justin Maxwell Stewart plans to restore the old lodge and demolish an adjoining brick toilet block to build an extension with an enormous 1,300 cubic metre basement. So in other words, he's building underground which is a, and building underground, a massive six metres. So he will be just a metre from the nearest grave. And this will give him a whopping 490 square metre house at the pool so he can have, in his words, lots of fun. So if you want to have a look up at that, look at Grand Designs UK. I believe it's probably on TV NZ On Demand. It may even be on YouTube. Um, and uh, that's a design that as well worth a look. So I was just going a little, little bit off topic uh, there, but just thought, well, that's something that I felt was was pretty interesting indeed. So let's get back to the uh, the more localised news. And this article by John Bishop and Stuff is talking about uh, the landlords, tenants and changes that have been happening recently uh, with the likes of the 10-year Brightline test and the inability for landlords to be able to offset their cost of borrowing against uh, against their income and so forth. So those sort of changes. This article says, are speculators really the problem? Isn't it the lack of houses? 
And so this is an opinion piece, but I'll just read part of what he says. He says, uh, John Bishop says, having read all the expert and self-interested commentary since the government's announcement of its package, I'm left both confused and bothered. Does this package make a real difference or not? Tellingly, no government minister has used the magic words which Kiwis want to hear. We've fixed the housing problem. So in my humble opinion, the government's priorities were wrong from the start. At the start of its last term, the government focused on first home buyers. That might sound like good politics for Labour, certainly the party seemed to think so, but it led to the disaster known as Kiwi Build. 100,000 homes were promised in 10 years, but just 828 houses were built in over three years before the target was scrapped, and not all of them have been sold either. And then Finance Minister Grant Robinson has made a great play of supposedly declaring war on property speculators. A great headline, and perhaps good politics for your own base, but are speculators really the problem? If there were enough houses to go around, there would be no opportunity for speculation. So that's something to bear that's underlining the next few articles, is that it's actually a shortage of supply that truly is the problem. So what did we hear about these changes? We heard about the report that, re- well, that reveals the impact of the housing package on rental properties. And this was a survey done by the New Zealand Property Investors Federation. The survey conducted from March 29th to April 2nd aims to understand how the new housing package would affect rental home providers. There were 1,000, over 1,700 respondents, the majority being members of the various property investors associations in New Zealand. According to the survey, the government's new tax laws will substantially affect just over 90% of rental property owners, increasing costs by around $3,100 per rental property, and on average, each investor's respondent's costs by around $15,000 in higher taxes. The survey also revealed that 76.8% of the respondents, that is landlords, said they would increase or probably increase rental prices to offset tax increases. Further, 8.9% might increase rental prices, with the median rental increase expected to be between $21 and $30 per week. While investors are not comfortable with increasing rental prices, the respondents feel that this would be their only real option for coping with the higher taxes caused by removing interest deductibility, the New Zealand Property Investors Federation said. So why is this? Well, the reason why is that well over 90% of residential rental property owners only own one or two properties. They're not rich people or fat cats. They're just people probably in many cases from a generation like mine who were warned years ago that you may have to do something to help yourself later in life, that the government super may not necessarily be allowed to be relied upon. That's something that we were warned about. So many people diligently went out and got uh, things like shares or purchased property or managed funds. And so now those people are in effect being punished for what uh, the government had asked them to do. And so really the difficulty is for many of those people, if the rental property has increased costs or is not making any money, the realities of life mean that they still have to pay the bills out of their household budget. So as landlords seek to avoid that pain, it will get passed on to the tenants. Now an interesting thing to note is that those changes that landlords might introduce might not be large and immediate because what the government has done is they've staged the inability to claim tax 
as a percentage. So up until later this year, you can claim 100%. From that next year, 75, then 50, then 25, and then none. So that's where we may not see um, massive rent increases, which is the shock uh, that many investors would immediately say, but rather regular rent increases to help offset that amount over the next four years. Uh, that's something to be aware of. And that's why they've come up with this $21 to $30 per year extra uh, effect that might be caused. So the government says, well, if someone puts the rent up too high, there's mechanisms to protest that, which there are through tenancy tribunal. And if it's found to be unfair, um, then it can be ruled that it is so and that, mu- that rent can be brought down. But that's because the government's assuming landlords will pop up the rent by something like 80 to $100 a week. But they won't. They'll do it by smaller amounts to offset that tax. So again, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, the problem is supply and demand. By making things harder for landlords, unfortunately, it makes it harder for tenants. So I can't help but think that Labor's latest changes in this regard have alienated them from both property investors and landlords and the tenants whose votes they are trying to get. And that leads on to another article because then, of course, things were talked about by the government to do with rental controls. And this article, which is an opinion piece by Daniel Dunkley and stuff, says here's why rental controls aren't the answer. So as the, he says, as, as the first of the government's housing reforms came into effect over the weekend, a nation obsessed with property played a guessing game over what would happen next. Most of the speculation around the market concerns rents, specifically whether landlords will hike prices and pass their newly increased costs on to tenants. Some property experts, including David Faulkner of consultancy Real IQ, believe rent increases will be sharp enough to prompt government intervention in the form of rental price controls. I don't think it will, as I just mentioned previously, because they won't go up the whole way in one go. Finance Minister Grant Robertson, who supported rent controls when he campaigned for Labour Party leadership in 2013, refused to rule out rent hike caps when grilled by journalists at the weekend, but he said the policy wasn't on the agenda, as he didn't expect rents to go up. So sometimes one might think, just in my opinion, that uh, people live in a bubble sometimes, and... um, and certainly there's some interesting decisions. And uh, we'll just have to see where that goes. Finally, probably just a final comment about the housing affordability, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> uh, housing affordability rules uh, changed and these changes that have been made will actually st- send some investors to uh, look into commercial property. And certainly uh, if the New Plymouth is anything to go by, there's been substantially more investment coming across to commercial property and the market there is pretty good. Uh, for example, um, Collier's sold property worth $17.3 million of uh, commercial property in the month when normally they sell between $1 and $3 million. So it could be a sign that investors are wanting to um, shift money into something which is a bit... Uh, which they feel is a bit safer or more profitable given the difficulties and hurdles that are being put in place in the housing market. And that's all we've got time for this week. This has been Property Matters. It's been lovely having your company. You can find this, of course, wherever all good podcasts are found or on the regular show here at npr.nz. We hope you have a lovely week in property and we'll be here this time next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.